Hi, today on the Big Break Software Podcast, we have Phil Alves, uh, Alves of the Dev Squad. Um, he's also bringing in a new SaaS called DevStats. DevSquad is a boutique consulting firm specializing in strategizing, prototyping, and developing digital products. DevSquad helps brands, organizations, and startups ideate and launch digital products with a fully aligned process that puts users first. Bill's going to talk today about how he manages his software development projects, how he came up with the idea for his own SaaS, and some of the best launch strategies that he's used to help his customers and himself easily find product market fit. How are you today, Phil? I'm doing great. Good, great. So uh, I gave you a bit of an intro, but why don't you tell me quickly about um, about yourself and uh, like what's getting you excited about what you're working on these days? Sure, yeah. I love to, to help founders ship amazing products. And, and I do that in many, in many ways. But, but that's my goal. I, I love building products. I, I believe they, they have a big impact in the world. Um, and that's kind of like what I do. Okay, great. And so um, why don't you start with uh, a bit about your background? I guess you're a software developer. Uh, I understand from uh, um, looking up in your background that you're, you're originally Brazilian. Is that right? Did you, you were in Brazil and then you moved to Utah? Or what, what's your sort of your background? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I, started, I taught myself how to code when I was still pretty young, 16, 17. Uh, I'm old enough that I learned how to code from books. I went and I, and I bought books at the bookstores and, and I was teaching myself how to code. Uh, I also had a blog at the time where I would write everything that I was learning about how to code. Uh -huh. uh, and I ended up actually getting hired to build this one specific piece of software by like some acquaintance. Uh, and I built that software was to manage like direct sales. Uh, I wrote a blog post in my blog and I didn't expect it, but the blog post ranked number one on Google. And a lot of people were reaching out because they want that same kind of software. They want something similar to their business. That was about like 600 comments on that post. Really? So, wow. Yeah. So first, I kind of like start giving like a license of a copy of the software for each, each person to call. And I quickly realized that was a nightmare. So it turned that into a SaaS. Uh, I, I built, then that's when I built my first SaaS product. I ended up actually pretty young. I was still 18. I grew that company to uh, 10 employees. Uh, okay. I, I ended up selling that company, uh, not, not for a lot of money because I'm, I was still in Brazil, but it was enough money that I didn't have to work for a few years. And it was enough money that I could apply for my student visa. To come to the United States as a student, you have to prove that you can support yourself for a few years without working. Uh, and that's what I did, and that's how I ended up in the United States. I, I came here on a student visa after I sold my first software business in Brazil. Uh, ended up working here in a couple jobs as a software developer, CTO, until then I started my own consulting firm, DevSquad. Okay, great. So that sounds like a great entrepreneurial background. Um, so you... Um, are you still coding now every day or are you more sort of on the on business side? I code on weekends. Uh, it's, it's not my real job to code, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I love coding. Uh, I just recently built an application uh, for free for some uh, organization that needs some nonprofit. And I did that on Saturday and weekends. But my, my real job right now, it's more product strategy, managing the team. I have a team of 100 people uh, and... 
I do a lot of other things in my day to day. I don't have a lot of time to code, but I love to code still. So I yeah. do on I do on nights and weekends, uh, not as much as I used to do before. Okay, that's great. That's great. <laughs> it's it's a hobby now, but you know, people that code for a hobby they usually have more hairs and stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. That's right. Coding for a hobby. Yeah. I mean, hey, you know, people people definitely do it, right? Um, that's good. So. Uh, recently, I've been thinking about um, software, um, and one of the things I, I I wanted to ask you your opinion, like, what's so great about software? I mean, I know it's a sort of general question, but I mean, what really, what do you love about software? I love that with software, we can make our lives better. Uh, we can, like, solve real business problems and make us more efficient, uh, and I love like how much you can create, right? Like the reason why I still write code today, it's because I feel kind of like a god when I write to my computer and I see something done on the other side. Uh, and it's it's so amazing they can visualize things and solve real problems and get give people real value and get the money back from, from what you were doing. Now, it's not easy to build software though. I actually think it shouldn't be your first business because it's very hard and you're gonna lose a lot of money. Uh, like usually for the first year, the first two years, you're going to be losing money if you're trying to build a SaaS product. But I think it's it's an amazing business uh, for you to build. Yeah. Um, one of, I mean, you touched upon something that, that I tell my customers because I also uh, run a dev shop. Um, one of the first questions that I ask is, why do you want to build this software? Because, you know, the, the odds are sort of stacked against you. Uh, there's so many failed software projects and stuff. So I really like to dive into my customers' reasons on why they want a software. Um, do you have some ideas on that? Do you like what are some of the warning signs that you maybe look for when you when somebody comes to you and say they have a software idea, or do you say no, that's fine, I'll, that's fine, we'll build we'll build it, and as long as you know, as long as you have a need for it. Uh, we're okay with that. No, we're actually very selective, like like you are, because I want to make sure the people that we onboard as a customer has a real shot at being successful, and I want to believe in their idea. I want my team to believe in their idea. Uh, so one thing that is usually a thing that we believe help a lot of people be successful, it's when they're an industry expert. For example, right now we're building a SaaS product for photographers. And we had this photographer that ran like one of the biggest photographer firms in the, in the country, making multiple seven figures. And then he's going to build software for people just like him so they can run their business better. So that's kind of like the ideal profile of people that we like to work with. They're like second, third time founder. Uh, so it's not their first business. They understand business. They understand marketing. Um, and they are a real expert in their industry. So they, they kind of know what the industry need. They know where to go to promote their product. So I, I try to stick with B2B. If someone comes to me with a B2C idea, uh, very unlikely that we're going to take them as a customer because as a B2C product, you have to raise millions and millions of dollars to make those work. Like if you look at Airbnb, if you look at Netflix, those companies raise so much money. So like if someone comes to me and they're like, I'm going to build a B2C product, my first question, okay, great. How are you going to fund it? Why people, how are you going to get like millions of dollars in funding? And then sometimes like, okay, I just had an exit. I was at this company as their CTO 
And then, okay, maybe he actually can raise all this money, um, but, but most founders can't. And, and that's kind of like the number one thing, the one, number one red flag for me that I usually don't take a customer if, if they want to build a B2C product as their first product because it's very, very hard. Okay, so, so you would say uh, industry expert and B2B, those are sort of your, your, two, uh, your two main qualifications for deciding whether you're going to work with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, what about if somebody has a like a B2B idea, they're not an industry expert, but they said, listen, I, I've, I've been, someone told me about this, uh, this project and, and I like to build this because I think it could solve this problem for some, someone else in another industry. What do you look for in that situation? Will you, will you still do that kind of project? And if so, like what would make you feel comfortable with working with that, that person? Yeah, I I might still do it, increase the risk a little bit. I will, like, how deep are you doing your research to understand this market uh, so you can actually solve this problem for these people? Uh, I'm going to look at how they're going to fund their products. It's always like, where's the money come from? Again, if they're a second, third time founder and they they have their own money, they're going to be able to bootstrap the product, even if it's an industry that they don't know, but still in the B2B space, and they kind of have a champion in the industry. No, I met this guy and he told me everything about this problem and I think I can solve it. I think I understand how to solve it. And that's how I do it. So that might be um, a customer that we might still take it. And one thing that we do before we get the customers fully commit to build their full product, we might run a design and strategy session. We might do this to a remote design sprint, where at the end we have a prototype where we test with like real users, we do interviews with the real user, get the feedback, see if you're actually solving the problem that we thought we would be solving. So maybe I will talk with that person about, let's do some like investigation work, let's do some product design and strategy and make sure there's a real problem to solve. So instead of us spending six months building your product, let's just spend four weeks uh, diving deeper and, and trying to figure out a roadmap of how we're going to build this product. Okay, so is that a deliverable then for for them? They, they'll actually have a, like a report or something like that at the end. So in, in their eyes, they're like, okay, you're asking for some some upfront money and you're going to do a strategy session, they'll get some kind of a pack at the end that says, here's what we think is good about this idea, pros, cons. Is that, I mean, sort of talk me through that, that sort of deliverable or the idea behind that. So, so there's three main deliverables that they're going to get. Uh, the first is a clickable prototype. So they can actually go on Figma and they can understand how the product's going to look at the end. Okay. This might not be the big, the whole product. It just might be like the what I call the hero flow, the most important problem that they're solving. Uh, the second deliverable is a roadmap of like how long we think it's going to take to build and how much it's going to take. And the third uh, deliverable, it's a video where we mix together like out the best quotes of the people that we interview about their product. So we go and interview 10 people, which interview is 30 minutes. They probably won't sit to 10, 30 minutes interview. So we get like two minutes bites of each of those interviews, mix them together in one video, and, and, and then we give it to them so they can see like the feedback that they are getting, the most important pieces. And with those three pieces, now they can make the decision if they want to move forward or not because they know how it's going to look, they know how much it's going to cost, they know the response of the market. Now, I'm going to personally look at that too. And if I believe... Um, the response of the market and the problem is not that big, I'll tell them, these are deliverables, we are not the best fit to keep working with you. 
uh, <laughs> you know, because that's for that's a two-way street, and I and I want to work with people that I, I still believe is going to be successful. So that's for them, and that's for us too. Okay. Now, is is the the reason that you turn down customers is it because you taking on risks that they won't be able to finish the project, or what? What is the reason that you would like? What What's a qualification for making you want to work with someone? Uh, like, if they're funding, is are you taking an equity stake? And you believe in the future of the product, or what's the sort of business model behind that? We actually don't take equity. They, they pay us uh, a monthly subscription for how many developers they have. But okay. the reason we want to work with companies that we believe in is because we think we're going to do a better job. I think it's going to be better for my culture and my internal team uh, that we all are working on a product that we believe, and then we can really kind of like be on the same team with the customer and embrace what we're going to be doing together. Uh, and we are a consulting firm. We're not a staff augmentation firm. What's the difference? The difference is like I don't hire a bunch of people every single month for all the customers that come. I have a team that have been with me for years. It's a team of about 100 people. And we can kind of be selective about the products that we're going to take on that's going to help us keep developing, that's going to help those people stay here in my company. So it's about getting the products that's going to be the best fit for us, that we have the highest chance of success uh, because we feel good when our customer built an amazing product. Like we just had a company recently that had a big exit. The customer was very happy. He sold his company for eight figures. Uh, and that's kind of like the kind of things that make everyone that work on the project bring their morale app up. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day when they, they fail, and there's two customers that we pick on that are not going to be amazing, uh, they might be like, oh, it's, it's easy to blame. And you don't want to be the one to, that's going to be blamed. That's why we're so selective. And again, because we have limit spots. Uh, I'm not trying to grow my consulting firm super, super fast. Uh, because again, it's a consulting firm. It's about us being able to add value in the product, in the strategy, not just being a body shop and give like uh, code monkeys to people. That's not what we do. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it's mostly for sort of morale and to sort of increase the longevity of the projects you want a long-term customer keep that those relationships that's essentially what what the reason that you would turn down projects and accept ones that look promising yeah okay and um what about uh um like do you care if somebody comes to you and they're just totally not technical i mean is that is that or that's fine with you because you're going to hold, take that technical side. Or do you recommend to say, well, listen, you're a solo founder. We recommend you getting like a technical co-founder to help you sort of, you know, manage things on your side. What's your sort of recommendations on, on that if somebody is not technical? Yeah, we are fine. Most of our founders are not technical at all. But unfortunately, that actual demographic, it's in the space where they can't, be screwed so easy where like they they so many times had a bad experience where they tried to hire someone and they got lied to and so when we onboard that customer what we want to do is teach them everything that we can about how they know if the developers are doing a good job so we're going to teach them about github about code review about how to know how things are going out show them my own SaaS product that connects to where the developers are working and give them stats on like what things are actually happening behind the, the, the scenes and, and what things are getting done. Uh, I believe uh, you don't have to be uh, technical to build a product. A lot of our most successful customers are not technical, but I also believe you really increase your risks of like 
being lied to, hire the wrong people, having developers thinking that your product's a playground. I see that all the time where developers are just like trying to test the newest technologies and then now they're using your product as like a, a place where they learn mm-hmm. and it's cool and it's supposed to be like, let's build this product and let's take them to market. So there's like so, so much risks for that kind of founder profile. But we love working with them. We, we love the risking for them. And you love teaching them. So in the future, uh, when they bring their own in-house developers, they, they know how to work with developers. And even if they're not technical, after a few months working with us, they're going to start to get more technical. They're going to start to learn what they need to learn to lead a tech company. Because mm-hmm. even if you don't write code, I believe you have to have an understanding of how things work. And we walk them to that process. Okay, so let's go down through some of those things because this, this could be interesting for our, uh, some of our listeners that may be thinking about jumping into SaaS. Uh, I presume everyone knows what Git, GitHub is, uh, you know, it's your repository, but, but how is that going to help them? Like, what are the things that they should, you're not teaching them how to go in and look at code, obviously, but, or are you? I'm teaching them how to look at are they following the best process. First, okay. like, you're supposed to be seeing commits every day. You're supposed okay. to see code review being done. So I explain okay. to them, this is a pull request. When a developer is doing their work, if they're working well, they're going to prepare a pull request. The pull request is going to say everything about what they, they accomplish in the task. It should be like, shouldn't be too big, like 500 lines of code around the smaller the best. So there can be actual code review and you're not building tech that. Now, they don't need to do, do the code review. They just need to know it's happening. Uh, you know, I might recommend if they, even if companies working with us uh, or not working with us, they're third parties companies that specialize only in code review. And for a founder that's building a product by themselves, I've, I think that's uh, amazing thing to do. So it's about the transparency and understanding what's going on in that flow. Uh, understand the code's being written and the code is being well written. Uh, I teach them about test driven, what's test driven development, what that should be happening. Uh, and like some basic logic things, I might talk to them like, this is how a database works. This is how we store stuff in the database. This is the flow of when a developer starts to do something. So yeah. I, I start to really teach them the, like, the mechanics of how things work. So uh, they can talk about their software, they can understand what's possible, uh, okay. and, they, and they can get better at what they do. In terms of code review, um, do you have recommendations on, on how you do code review for them? If they're non-technical, uh, there may be a bit of a, is there a conflict of interest having the same company do the code review? Or do you recommend that you get external code reviews done? I mean, what's your guidelines on code reviews? It could be a conflict of interest. And uh, some of our biggest customers, we work with public companies. Uh, we work with ADP, we work with Box. They have a third party come and do code review on what we were doing. Uh, and our smaller customers, they might not do that because they trust us and they, want, they don't want to spend extra money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do believe it's smart to at least uh, once a month uh, come and company see, see how code review is being done. We don't have to always have them look forever, but just like, okay, can you go back and look at my pull request? Look at what the reviewers did. Did the review make sense? Is, there's actual code review being done. Uh, what are the things that are being pointed out? And like, just give them a, Put them, give them peace of mind that the team is actually doing code review. Uh, and also, I have to teach them that developers aren't perfect, right? This is normal. This is part of the process. The code is going to come. We're going to have to improve stuff. We're going to go back. Software is a living thing. 
Uh, and that's another thing that I like to talk about with my customers. Okay. In terms of some of the, the for you, the must-have tools that you use for develop, so developing a SaaS, let's stick to a SaaS because that's mostly what we're, we're talking about here. Are this some, like, must-have tools or, um, you know, sort of processes that you, that, that you feel like are, are essential? Yeah, usually I, I believe uh, it's good to have Scrum running on Jira or you do two weeks of sprints. Um, okay. I, I like to have a discovery sprint going where we're thinking about the feature and you're designing what we're going to build next. And okay. for that, I like to use Figma. Uh, okay. And then a code repository could be GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab, one of those. And then yeah. uh, I actually build my own SaaS, which connect to all those tools and give you data. For example, we are planning to do the sprints, but we're only getting 80% done every time. We're not, we're never hit the, the 100%. We're adding things late to the sprint. There's things that are being carried over for like more than two sprints. Like we keep adding and never gets done. What's going on? Are, do we have a issue prioritizing? So on the top of all the normal tools, my own SaaS connects there and give them a, a big picture of what we're doing. Like what kind of, are we spending our time doing bugs, enhancements, or new features? Uh, are we overloading our developers? Are they working too many times at once? And those are questions that my own software answer uh, to, to our customers. Okay. So, um, so let, let's see, you brought up your own software. This is DevStats. Is that what it's called? Yep. Okay. So let, let's talk about um, what gave you the idea? Well, what, I mean, this might be helpful for, for people to see, like, why are you building this software? Uh, what was the problem? Is, I mean, because my understanding is that Jira does some of that, right? They have um, burned, you know, all these sorts of reports. And, um, you know, why, why build the software? Yeah, the information on, on Jira wasn't enough to help us help our developers change their behaviors to get better and help us have a deep understanding of how things are going. For example, there's the velocity report on Jira. Our reports, the velocity on steroids. But why I build it? It goes back to, like, I'm the industry expert on running development teams. I have I have more than 100 developers working in like 20 plus different products, and I need a way to make sure we were doing a good job for everybody. I need a way to help my developers keep improving and, and keep getting better. I need to know, for example, if I have four developers on a product and I add a fifth developer, did it get faster? How much faster? We know it's not going to get 25% faster because there's the time of onboarding the developer and how long, mm -hmm. what's the impact. So, so those are all things that I need to know, and I use other tools in the market that try to solve the problem. And I felt like they were too complex or too simple. And I started solving the problem for, for ourselves internally, and I was like, I think we solved this in a way that we can give to other companies. Uh, and, and especially like when you are working with this big public company and they came to us and they were like, why is your team a lot more productive than mine? What's different? Because you're building a product, we have two products at the same time, same technology, same team size, why is your team more productive? And it was about like our processes, our flows, and, okay. and the things that we have kind of like our own hack together, uh, scripts that were giving us the reports in, 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 in different ways that were helping us change our behavior. So I figure I'm a real expert in helping development teams become high-performing, and I'm going to build a tool to do just that. And that's how I come up with the idea. Okay, so 
when somebody says to you like why is your team more productive how are they coming to that that uh, basis are they seeing that by the results that you're pro you're producing more or are they looking at some report that says that your team you know committed uh, 1500 lines of code and their team only did 900 i mean how are they coming up with the fact that you you are more productive no they're looking to finish work they're looking they're seeing that we're doing more or more uh, there's more work that's finished. There's more things that actually are adding value to the customer. Uh, those then we try to break that down. We break it down in cycle time, throughput, uh, other metrics of how the team is working, uh, code review quality, uh, and all those other metrics to see how we actually can deliver more output for our customers. But it's it doesn't matter. Just a number like, oh, there's more commits or more lines of codes. Those are actually bad metrics. But there are other metrics like cycle time, which the time they take from when you start a, a pull request, like, sorry, from when you start a branch to the time the branch got merged and in, in, in the, the feature hit production. So what's the cycle time? Like, how big are the tasks that we're doing? There are other, like, smaller metrics that influentiate how, what's the output of a team. Okay, great. And so... Your clients then would generally be, would they be other consultants or would they be um, for in-house developers or like what's your ideal client for this product? It's usually SaaS products that are like getting over the 10 developers mark because it's very easy to be productive with a small team of developer because everyone's talking, everyone it's kind of like on the top of things, but as you get like six, seven, eight, things start to get hard. And so development teams of like 10 developers or more, uh, it's the ideal customer for us. Like the people that are hiring us as SaaS founders and VP of engineering, those are the people that are buying our product, uh, which is kind of like the same people that actually hire my consulting firm. But instead of helping them building for them, I help them with my own product too. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So uh, I said, but you're talking about 10 people on the same project, right? Could you could not like 30 people that are spread out over maybe three or four projects that wouldn't help no that helps too that helps a lot oh it does okay so, yes. so you can see just by examining which developers are sort of being productive and which are not or or how is it productive uh you know break it down for like you know let's say um uh let's say someone has they have 35 developers but they're working on you know a bunch of projects how does that you know how can you differentiate the productivity between the teams on that? You can still look at data like cycle time. We can still look at it like flow. How, how is the team like following the best flow? Or one of the big mistakes that developers do, for example, it's starting a bunch of things at once, work in progress. Mm -hmm. So maybe one, one developer is like running three things at once and we work with them, like do one thing at a time. And so different products is going to definitely have different complexity. So you cannot do an apple-to-apple -apple comparison. You can't be, say, team A cycle time is five days and team B is three days, so team A sucks. No, that's the wrong way. You have to understand the complexity. But there's also a lot of flows, a lot of things that you can do. And then the, the team that's performing better can help the other team. And, and usually in a company with, like, 30-plus developers, you can move people around and you can see, like, who are the real champions, who are the best. If, like, we have one team that does a lot of code review, other team that doesn't do a lot of code review, can you like change the culture or can you get that person that's good at code review and put it as one team that's not doing a lot of code review? Because code review, again, it's amazing how much that can improve the quality of the software, how much that can improve the culture because the developers start to get better and they start to like 
know each other and know the product. So, so there's a lot of things like that uh, mm-hmm. that, that can happen. Most of our, of our customers on the product right now have a lot of products that their teams are doing, like uh, hundreds of developers and working different products. Okay, so let's talk about um, you, you, you fall into this category of being an industry expert, right? So mm-hmm. you found this problem. You're now solving it, which is exactly what you said is the perfect uh, scenario for successful SaaS. Walk me through the um, the sort of the thinking of how you plan on growing this and how you've helped grow your customers with like what's the sort of path that you want to push this out so that it can see product market fit. It works very well because it's the same people that I'm already serving. Uh, uh-huh. And, and I write, I'm already talking to these people on my my channels, on my on my social media, on my marketing. But I one thing that works for a lot of our SaaS founders that I see uh, that work for us, and what's gonna what I'm doing in my product right now. This one is strategy. It's uh, actually at the early days, I believe cold outreach is super powerful in the B2B space. Uh, I, I run my own podcast tour. I interview SaaS founders about their origin stories. And a lot of people say that in the early days, they, they did code outreach, and that's how they got their first many customers. And then from there, you add like other channels uh, like um, SEO and paid, paid search or, or other things like that. But what I, I love about code outreach uh, is that you can get to test their messaging, and then when you're doing demos, you're seeing how much your customers are loving, and then you kind of try to get to product market fit. To answer your question for product market fit, I, I believe product market fit is when you have people coming back to your product and using every week. And that's the metric that I track with all my customers. I track like uh, weak streaks of the people are coming and they're using your product. Uh, now, there's products that doesn't require people to come back every week and they have to get more creative. But most B2B products, if people are logging every week and they're using the product, we can see that they're loving. And one thing that I use behind the scenes is to call mixed panel. Mixpanel mm-hmm. sends all the events back to me, and I can understand which reports people are using, what they're not using, people that are coming back. And when people stop coming back in the early days, you can, or even later on, you can always uh, interview users about like what they like and what they don't like uh, about your product. Sorry, that's a long answer, but <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does, and I, I'm a big believer in Mixpanel as well. We, we install it in all of our SaaSes as well. Um, what are some of the most important stats you look for in Mixpanel? So log, new logins what, and, and, and recurring use, or what are the like your go-to stats you need, need from Mixpanel? I look at most used features, um, like what features are people using, so like tracking the engagement, how, how much are they coming back. I usually try to find to uh, what's the path that's kind of like represent activation. For example, my own product, if users are creating alerts, about when numbers change, it's a huge indication that they're really engaged with the product. So most of my metrics, especially when we are like tracking product market fit, is about understanding user engagement. Like what can I do to understand the engagement of the user with this platform and, and where are they dropping, what filters are they using, what they're not using. Uh, those are kind of like the things that I look at at Mixpanel. Okay, and and how far along are you with your project now? Is it is it uh... Is it fully developed now, or where were you at with it? Yeah, we're getting ready to, to do the final. Um, we're going to start charge. So what, mm-hmm. the way that we did, uh, we did cohorts of beta test, beta testing. Mm-hmm. And I ran three cohorts last year. 
where mm-hmm. I, we brought different people and they were all part of those cohorts and they gave us a lot of like feedback. So I feel like the product's in a very good position now. And on Q2, we're going to start to, and we already have a couple of our customers paying, like the, of the beta customers, but we're going to start, instead of accepting beta customers, we're bringing the customers that will be paying full price for the product. So that's kind of like where we are. Uh, we did talk about a year in that beta where I was very like selective with who come in, who didn't come in, and, and we were like watching a mix panel very quickly, what people are doing, what people are not doing, and try to improve the product uh, for, for the whole year. I think I saw a post from you um, saying uh, good reasons on not to speak with your customers, um, but here you're talking about actually wanting to get feedback from from your customers. Can you further iterate on, on, on that? Sure. I, I think the problem it is sometimes when people talk to their customers, they expect their customers to make the decision for them. Uh, and they go back to like the very famous Ford quote. If I ask people what they want, they would say faster horses. They wouldn't yeah. say that they want a car. I think your job as a founder is to call the shots. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so when you're talking to customers, you're not asking for solutions. You're just trying to understand what they're doing, how they're doing, and, and then you come and you make the bet. You might be right, you might be wrong, but there's no way for you to be 100% sure, and there's not amount of research of talking to customers. You can't build software by community. Software has to be built on you calling the hard shots, and that's I feel like people get confused uh, on like when they're talking to the customers and trying to think, hey, now I need to do everything that everyone is saying. And one book that I love on the topic is called Mom Test. Talks about how you can actually speak with customers, but don't listen to customers. <laughs> you right, know, right. You, you you just are there, kind of like a investigating and analyzing and getting insights. Yeah, that's a that's a great book. I read that actually um, a little while ago. I like the mom test. Um, so in in I mean, surely like there's when when you're talking to your users, you're you're getting feedback. They must be taking some of their feedback. Are you, is there a way that you sort of gauge on which features should be added? And, oh, this sounds like a sort of outlier. We're not going to do this. I mean, how do you, how do you tell when your features, when your, your, um, your users are telling you about a great feature? I mean, how do you know that? Is it like a number of how many people are asking for it? Or, or what, what do you use to gauge that? Yeah, I think you start hearing the same thing over and over again. It's something they want to investigate, but also comes from being the industry expert uh, and trying to, to make those decisions to like what I'm going to bet on. But if you start hearing over and over again the same problem, and, and again, we want to hear the problem, not the solution. Uh, even if, they're, if they tell me, I want to feature X, I'm going to backtrack and be like, what problem are you trying to solve? Why do you want to feature X? And then I might do it with other people and come up with my own solution to solve their problem uh, because I, I'm not interested in their future request. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. interested in what problem we have to solve. And I do yeah. the same with my customers. I teach my customers to do the same. Uh, another book that I love, it's called The Building Trap, where we just keep build, 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 build. Uh, and that's also a mistake that many SaaS founders do. Sorry, it's called The Building Trap? Yes. Okay. And um, in terms of like uh, um, your rollout, what's what's your sort of rollout plan for for your SaaS? Um, do you have like, are you going to go and just do traditional uh, marketing? You know, sort of 
SEO and things like that, or do you have uh, marketplaces that you want to go into? I mean, what, what's your sort of idea to roll this out? Like I mentioned, we're going to stay stick with Outbound for, for the first six months at least, where we okay. go straight to that customer that we believe is our ideal profile, and then we ask mm -hmm. to, to talk to them. Uh, as, as the organization grows, I'm definitely going to, I'm a big believer of SEO too. Okay, so you mentioned uh, you like Outbound. Um, what tools do you like for Outbound? Because, you know, Outbound's a popular SaaS marketing. You, want, you just sort of compare notes with other SaaS founders. What, what do you use? Like, what's your, what's your, what are the tools you like? What's your sort of avatar? Um, what's your take up on that? Yeah, uh, outreach.io it's, it's a very good tool. Uh, there's a lot of other um, tools that, that I that do well uh, in that space. Um, it, it, usually, to be honest, what we do, we will hire a consultant to run outbound for us. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not running outbound uh, internally, so there's I work with like freelancer consultants that will be our SDR. They're gonna mm -hmm. run. Uh, and then we they just kind of connect us with the people that say yes to um, to our what we need. I think it's it's a lot cheaper and there's it's very a lot of comp it's very complex to run outbound. There's like things that could wrap to your domain. You have to be testing different messaging. So I usually run with a consultant. Uh, I try to stick with like what I'm good at, running my business, building products, uh, understanding the problem, and that's kind of like what I recommend for a SaaS founder. Uh, I think you can get a good consultant for like two to five thousand a month, and it's just better than trying to run yourself. That's how I do it. So twenty five hundred to five thousand per month, uh, and how many leads do you expect for that? It depends on the product and everything, but I'll, I'll expect a few meetings every week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like probably um, twenty meetings a month. Okay. That one demos a month. That's what I'm going to expect. But you have to ramp up, like in the beginning when you're doing. If, if you're because again, you're testing the messaging. So if you're doing five a month, okay, what can we do to, to keep improving the messaging and testing the avatar, and and that's gonna like all gonna work for you to use that later into your inbound marketing. Because now when I go to write SEO content, I know what the right messaging. When I try to go paid ads on, on LinkedIn or, or anywhere, I know what the message that converts. So outbound is not my long-term strategy, but it is mm -hmm. my, uh, my short-term go-to-market strategy. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, that's good. For example, on my consulting firm now, we do zero outbound because we, get, we have like a blog with a lot of um, posts that come. So we are very strong on SEO for our main keywords. We have a, a big budget on, on Google ads. Uh, where we're going after our own keywords, uh, but like my pro my consulting firm is very profitable, and I can't afford to invest all that money in marketing. Uh, when you're not profitable yet, we have to try to do like that very cheap, uh, and and I think outbound is that cheap uh, channel that's very powerful. Yeah. So the plan for you is to use cash flow from the agency to fund the SaaS. Is that right? Is that how you're funding it? That's how I'm doing it. Okay. I like that approach a lot more, especially now as we are seeing like what's going on in tech and like all the layoffs. And I feel like those layoffs are m most unnecessary. It's because um, companies have something with their investors and they have to return a certain kind of investment. Like we see public companies like Facebook, they went and they fire a, a bunch of people and then the next month now they're buying stock back. So like they didn't really need to save that money. It's just the actions are 
about the market and, and I prefer to have full control and my actions to be about long-term thinking, not about like this quarter. Uh, and so that's why I kind of like, I like the bootstrap route and I like not being reliant on investors to tell me what to do and what not to do. Right, right. So your plan is to bootstrap. Is that, is, is that like, do you have a goal to get us to a certain point at which time you'll take on investment or is it going to be bootstrapped? I'm not going to take on investor ever. It's always going to be bootstrapped. That's what I, I, my plan is for now. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, and I think we are the only software in this space that's bootstrapped. And I think that's going to be a really unfair advantage because a lot of companies are going to be kind of like going out around their tail. When you, I see firsthand when companies raise a bunch of money, they go and they waste a bunch of the money hiring. A lot of people, they don't have to hire, overcomplicate things they don't have to overcomplicate. Uh, and so we are the only company in this space that's bootstrapped. And I, and I believe that's an unfair advantage. And is the idea to keep this, the agency going as well? The agency and, and, and the, the SaaS? I mean, yeah. obviously... And, you know, things could change in five, ten years, but the idea is to sort of grow them uh, in, in t together. Yeah, the agency is pretty big now. It's like about 100 people, uh, and it, I have a CTO, I have a VP of product. So it doesn't require so much of my time, the fulfillment in the day-to-day. -day. So that, that is definitely the, the goal to keep the agents going and keep growing. Uh, and I think it's going to take years for my SaaS to catch up the, the, um, the agent's revenue because it, it's really... Uh, it's a decent size agents. Okay, that's great. Uh, Phil, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to make sure we get you off to your next uh, appointment. But um, uh, where can people find out more about you and more about the SaaS that you're building? Best ways to sign up for my newsletter at philalves.com, P-H-I-L-A-L-V-E-S.com. That's my newsletter. I talk about my SaaS, uh, my insights, and everything about my like my journey as an entrepreneur on that newsletter. Okay, great. So we'll make sure we have that in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time, and we look forward to keeping in touch and wish you success in both the agency and the SaaS. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. Yeah, likewise.